At around 12.15 on December 17, 1967, the sun was beating down on a small secluded cove near Portsea, Australia, called Cheviot Beach. Mrs. Marjorie Pamela Gillespie was sitting on a beach towel, gazing out at the ocean. Her friend, Alan Stewart, was splashing about in the shallows of the water. Off in the distance, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt was swimming straight into the turbulence. Harold was a strong swimmer. Despite the high tide, crashing surf, and eddying swirls of water, he looked in control. There had been talk about choppy waters near the shore, but none of Harold's friends seemed too concerned about him. Marjorie stared in admiration. Harold was a real sportsman. A breeze tickled Marjorie's neck. A wave crested along the shoreline. She closed her eyes, listening for the crash. When she opened them, Alan was standing in the foam, turning to face her in horror. Harold had vanished into the waves. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today we'll be looking into the disappearance of Australia's 17th Prime Minister, Harold Holt, who went for a swim in December of 1967 and never came back. It's conventionally assumed that Harold Holt drowned off of Cheviot Beach near Portsea, Victoria, on December 17, 1967. That's what the police report on his death concluded, at least. Holt went for a swim in the presence of four witnesses on a day when the tide was exceptionally high and the current was unusually strong. They were dangerous swimming conditions even for an expert swimmer like Harold. But Harold's body was never found. After interviewing local experts on the tides and medical experts as well, the police concluded that this was due to one of two scenarios. One, the tide had carried Harold's body far out from shore before rescuers could get to it. Or two, the body became lodged in underwater rock formations and sea creatures attacked it, leaving little corpse left to be found. But not everyone was convinced that the missing prime minister simply drowned in a tragic accident. His disappearance has led to a host of theories ranging from credible to outlandish. 
We're going to address this mystery from two angles. One, we'll examine why Harold even entered the water on that fateful day, considering the turbulent water conditions. He must have seen the waters were choppy, and yet he swam out anyway. But he wasn't, by any reports, a daredevil or prone to taking unnecessary risks. What could have led him to be so reckless? What could have been affecting his judgment? Two, we'll consider the range of theories that all claim Harold's death was no accident. But first, to understand why there was so much speculation about Harold Holt and his disappearance, Let's talk a bit about who he really was. Born in Sydney, Australia in 1908, Harold Holt was elected Prime Minister in 1966 at the age of 57. He was the country's first Prime Minister to be born in the 20th century. Holt was a political conservative, elected as the leader of the center-right Liberal Party, and his landslide victory was largely due to his staunchly pro-America stance on the matter of the Vietnam War. He would follow in the footsteps of his predecessor, another Liberal Party Prime Minister, by contributing Australian troops to the American war effort. In fact, his politics were so pro-America that in June 1966, he joked that he was all the way with LBJ, echoing President Lyndon B. Johnson's presidential campaign slogan. Amongst many Australians, this didn't land well. While in 1966, a pro-Vietnam War stance was popular, Australians wanted their prime minister to forge an independent foreign policy for their country. They didn't just want to be lackeys of America. Harold was quickly turning into a divisive politician. The kind of politician who has a target on his back. Harold's domestic policies also made him many enemies. He took an independent approach, considering he was a member of Australia's center-right party. Although he stuck to right-leaning views with a hard anti-communist line, he liberalized immigration laws, notably relaxing restrictions on non-white immigrants. And he created the first state-sponsored arts infrastructure projects, including the National Gallery. In fact, some of his more independent actions in domestic matters stirred up some real ire across the country. Holt verbally attacked a journalist for criticizing him in April 1967, raising eyebrows throughout the news community. In May of that same year, he angrily interrupted the maiden speech of a new member of parliament, which was a breach of parliamentary tradition. Then, in October 1967, he and his government as a whole were further embarrassed by a scandal involving misuse of VIP aircraft after an MP took a controversial guest on a VIP trip. An extended discussion about who should be allowed on the aircraft and when ensued. It was a tough year for the new prime minister, despite the landslide election that brought him into office. However, he seemed to relish in the animosity between him and some of his citizens, as well as his fellow politicians. That attraction to controversy may have inadvertently put Harold Holt in danger. Harold did have one thing going for him. Australians appreciated his personality. 
He was well known as an active sportsman and projected a hearty, good-natured image. He regularly played tennis and went spearfishing along the Australian coastline, including at Cheviot Beach, where he eventually vanished. Another of his sports was cheating on his wife of 20 years, Zara, although his extramarital affairs were always discreet. In fact, his attraction to secret affairs reportedly started before he married her. He had a liaison with Zara herself while she was still married to her first husband. There was widespread speculation that two of her children from that first marriage, a set of twins, were actually Harold's children. He adopted them formally along with Zara's first child after the couple married. Another of Harold's affairs was reportedly with Mrs. Marjorie Gillespie, his neighbor in Turak, and a witness to his disappearance on Sunday, December 17, 1967. She, among a host of other friends and acquaintances, saw plenty of Harold in the lead-up to that fateful day. Collectively, they provided police with a clear picture of the weekend that took Harold from controversial politician to the world's most talked-about missing person. Let's dive into the story they told. It was Friday, December 15th, the last working day of the year before the Christmas holiday. Harold wrapped up his duties as Prime Minister for the year and then flew from Canberra to Melbourne. Then, in the afternoon, he drove towards the beach from Melbourne. He arrived at his vacation home in St. George's Road, Turak, before 5 p.m. The house was empty. His wife was still in Canberra. At 6.45, he had drinks with Marjorie Gillespie and her husband, Wilton, followed by dinner at home with his longtime housekeeper, Mary Lawless. Over the meal, they discussed Harold's return to the city on Tuesday with his grandchildren for a Christmas party. Harold, according to Mrs. Lawless, was in his normal good spirits, happy to be at the beach and looking forward to spending time with the grandkids. On Saturday afternoon, Harold played tennis with friends, although his game was slightly inhibited by a minor shoulder injury. He'd been to see a doctor about it and was prescribed some morphine. But the shoulder didn't seem to be bothering him too much. His friends observed that he seemed in normal spirits. They slapped him on the back for a game well played despite his injury and sent him on his way. That evening, Harold went to a small cocktail hour party before hosting 14 guests for dinner at his own home. It was a cheerful summer party, concluding with stereo music and a not unusually late bedtime for Harold. The next day, too, began like most of Harold's days at his beach house. He woke up at 6.30 a.m. and soon after phoned up Marjorie Gillespie. He was going to watch Alec Rose sail into port later that morning. Rose had just completed an impressive circumnavigation from England. The arrival of his ship, the 36-foot catch Lively Lady, would be quite an event. Marjorie Gillespie was enthusiastic about the arrival of the Lively Lady, too. They agreed that at 11 a.m., Harold would pick up Marjorie, her daughter, Viner, and two young men staying with the family, Martin Simpson and Alan Stewart. Next, Harold went to see his stepson, who was staying nearby with his wife and daughter, Sophie. 
Harold played with little Sophie in the garden, then drove into Portsea for the Sunday papers. On his way home, Harold stopped by his neighbor's house and spoke with the neighbor's son, Jonathan Edgar, about their previous spearfishing ventures. Perhaps, Harold suggested, it was time for another trip. What about that afternoon around 4 p.m. at Cheviot Beach? Edgar agreed. Just after 11, Harold arrived at the Gillespie's as promised. The party climbed into the car, drove out to the viewing point, and, unable to see much of the ship, quickly gave up on the project. Lazily, they suggested the beach instead. It was a hot day. Harold asserted that a dip in the water would do them all good. Then they would all have lunch. This was a sportsman's attitude. Exercise, in Harold's mind, was the best way to work up an appetite. They arrived at Cheviot soon after noon, equipped with bathing suits and ready to cool down. But the party looked out at the water in surprise. Harold was as surprised as the rest. He knew this beach like the back of his hand, he said. But he'd never seen the water this high. Viner and Martin Simpson immediately gave up any plans of swimming. Too rough for us, they indicated, as they strolled off along the shore, watching the water in quiet awe and chattering softly. Mrs. Gillespie, too, shook her head emphatically at the idea of a swim. Today was not the day. She settled onto a beach towel, resigning herself to an afternoon of unmitigated heat. Alan Stewart said he'd splash about near the shore and leave it at that. But Harold shrugged his shoulders and strode into the water alone, his stride long and confident, despite the current tugging at him even in the shallows. His arms stretched out into practiced, strong strokes. His body cut through the roaring waves. And then he disappeared. Coming up, we'll hear about the aftermath of Harold's disappearance and the theories put forward about his strange decision to swim into such deadly waters. Now, back to the story. Early in the afternoon of Sunday, December 17th, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt disappeared into the waters at Cheviot Beach. Four people were present at the time, although only two, Alan Stewart and Marjorie Gillespie, were watching his distant form in the waves when suddenly it disappeared. In Marjorie's words, it was like a leaf being taken out. It was so quick and so final. But Alan and Marjorie tried not to panic. At first, they assumed he was just hidden behind a cresting wave. They spent ten whole minutes peering out into the ocean in disbelief, sure that Harold would re-emerge out of the roiling surf. A strange choice, considering their friend was nowhere in sight and almost certainly drowning. They realized that finally when he didn't reappear. In a steadily mounting panic, they rapidly discussed their options. Neither was a strong enough swimmer to forge out into these wild waters. Marjorie stood by the shore to keep an eye out for Harold. Alan ran off to get help. The Victoria Police launched a search and rescue mission immediately. 
But the divers who dove into the waters at Cheviot weren't able to get far. One of them explained the conditions. The water was dirty, it was difficult to see, and the undertow was extremely strong. We were just getting pushed backwards and forwards by the waves, and the undertow was trying to pull us into the channel and out to sea. It was too rough to be able to search properly. By the time the waters calmed down and the rescue party was able to make a thorough search of the ocean surrounding Cheviot Beach around 5.45 p.m., Harold Holt was gone. The average person can tread water for about two hours before sinking from exhaustion. In the unlikely event that Harold had been drawn far out to sea by the current, that time frame could have easily slipped by before rescuers reached him. Additionally, the average person can only hold their breath for a minute. Some professional swimmers can go for up to five minutes before needing air. But if Harold dropped underwater from exhaustion, he wouldn't have had long before he started swallowing seawater and drowned. If the rough waters tossed Harold into an underwater rock formation and lodged him there, the whole process could have occurred even more quickly. A joint report by Commonwealth and Victoria Police submitted in January 1968 concluded that there has been no indication that the disappearance of the late Mr. Holt was anything other than accidental. The government accepted the police's official stance and chose not to pursue an inquiry into the death themselves, which, in the case of most any apparently accidental drowning, would have been the logical decision. The government might have decided to treat the case differently, considering the drowned person in question was the prime minister. But there was no precedent for such a government inquiry in Australia, where only two PMs had died in office, both of relatively straightforward heart attacks. And so, the government chose to let the case go. This was for reasons that made sense to them. However, the fact that the government didn't conduct an investigation led some people to suspect a cover-up. They wondered what really happened on Cheviot Beach that day. Our first line of theories about the real story behind Harold's disappearance claimed that he died that day, but not by accident. Harold Holt died of suicide. This idea rests on a single question about the Prime Minister's behavior. Why would an intelligent, experienced sportsman like Harold have gone swimming in such dangerous conditions if he didn't want to die? He knew better than to risk his life to cool off. The logic behind the theory looks back at Harold's political troubles at the end of his first term. Harold had ridden a wave of support into office for Australian involvement in the Vietnam War. But the tide was turning against his pro-Vietnam, pro-Lyndon B. Johnson foreign policy. He was also facing political pressures from the Australian government after mishandling several government controversies, including one involving the misuse of VIP aircraft. Rumors started to circulate that the pressure had mounted too high. Harold hadn't been lost to accidental drowning. He had died of suicide to escape the political mess he had dug himself into. 
The idea is not statistically improbable, at least insofar as suicide by drowning is not uncommon in coastal areas. One Newfoundland study, looking at numbers from the late 80s and early 90s, found that drowning by suicide accounted for 25% of suicidal deaths in people above 50. And the theory took the press by storm as Australia and the international community grappled with the loss of the hale, energetic prime minister. Even Life magazine endorsed the theory. Believers insisted that his mental state had been chaotic and depressed because of his political troubles, and he'd decided to end it all at Cheviot Beach. Or at least, he hadn't cared whether he lived or died as he recklessly entered the water. The theory tracks since it explains a tragedy that otherwise feels too senselessly arbitrary. It gives a human explanation for his sudden loss. However, outside of this sentiment, there's little proof for this conclusion. The police report into his life followed his ordinary domestic pattern during the lead-up to the disappearance. We have a very thorough breakdown of his schedule prior to his disappearance, and we can compare that to his generally busy social days and see that there wasn't anything unusual at play. Harold's longtime housekeeper, Mary Lawless, confirmed that he seemed his normal self, spirited and energetic. Alan Stewart, Marjorie Gillespie, and all the other family members, friends, and acquaintances Harold saw in the days and hours leading up to his disappearance said the same. And his normal self wasn't the kind to consider suicide, according to every single person who knew him that ever spoke on the subject. In the words of Sir Alexander Downer, who worked with Harold in government, Holt was a gregarious man with a zest for living, neither moody nor introspective, earthy in some of his tastes, happy in his marriage, interested in the welfare of his stepsons and their families, with an overriding love of politics and with his public career in full flight. Plus, the fact that he disappeared in full view of multiple people makes suicide extremely unlikely. It's uncommon for people to attempt suicide with witnesses present. But still, over the years, people have struggled to understand why Harold would have decided to enter such rough waters on December 17, 1967. As recently as 2008, a docudrama called The Prime Minister is Missing suggested another explanation. The program, funded by government production company Screen Australia in association with ABC Television, proposed that Harold was of unstable mind and health on December 17th, but not because he was depressed. The argument here is that Harold was stressed by the pressures of government that earlier theories insisted had led to depression, but not that they were making him suicidal. Instead, those pressures, combined with a dose of morphine, seriously impaired his judgment. Harold was, in fact, verifiably prescribed morphine for the shoulder injury that was affecting his tennis game the day before he disappeared. If he had taken some morphine for his pain on December 17th, his judgment would have been seriously clouded, especially if the morphine was combined with the stress from his work as prime minister and perhaps a beachside beer. 
Alcohol and painkillers can be a deadly combination, one enhancing the effects of the other. This is an intriguing theory because it ties together the biggest loose end of the case, which the official police investigation never tied up. Harold's decision to take a reckless swim. But this theory, like the theory that he was suicidally depressed, has no solid evidence to back it up. While Harold was certainly prescribed morphine at the time of his disappearance, there's nothing to indicate that he was taking it on the day he disappeared. None of his beach companions noted any behavior that suggested Harold was under the influence of morphine. It's a difficult theory to rule out, but it's just as difficult to prove. However, there's another version of this theory that falls somewhere between the proposal of suicide and the morphine idea. It focuses on the simple, very likely fact that Harold was stressed after an intense year of governing Australia and may have gone swimming hoping to relieve the stress, despite apparent dangers. In the words of Robert Southey, a senior figure in the organizational wing of Harold's Liberal Party, my own feeling about what happened is something like this. Harold was a very good swimmer, and he came back to Melbourne troubled, not very well, overstretched, overstrained, worried by political challenges and thinking, well, now I can relax. There's one area in which I really am unchallenged boss, and that's the sea. Southie's proposal seems fair. We know Harold was a sportsman, and sport was a part of his life in which he felt justifiably confident. We also know that he was coming off a tough year of governing. Leading a nation is no easy task, and 1967 hadn't gone particularly smoothly. He may have entered the water looking for cool relief on a hot day, and a straightforward challenge that was easy to meet. The fact that his lover, Marjorie Gillespie, was present on the beach only adds fuel to this theory. He may have been showing off for her. The theories that focus on Harold's reasons for swimming out into the water that fateful day aren't the only ones that involve his lovers, though. One wild theory suggests he swam out to a boat waiting at a neighboring beach and sailed away to live with one of his lovers forever. Now, there's absolutely no support for that idea. But it's just one of many theories that latch onto the fact that Harold's body was never found. A fact that sheds light onto one of the biggest holes in this case. There was no body, so there was no proof that Harold Holt actually died. Coming up, we'll explore the most popular versions of the theories that claim Harold Holt didn't drown on December 17, 1967. Now, back to the story. On December 17, 1967, Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt disappeared into the waters surrounding Cheviot Beach near Portsea, Victoria. Some theorists wondered why he'd gotten into the water in the first place, but all official reports presumed he'd drowned. Not everyone was so sure. 
Some people pointed out that Harold's body was never found. There was no proof that he had been killed by the wild Cheviot waters, or that he was dead at all. It's these same folks who have come up with the second sort of theory surrounding Harold Holt's disappearance. They believe that it was no accidental death, and it wasn't a suicide either. Some of them insist that he was murdered as political retribution. Others think that he ran away because he was a communist spy. The official version of the story proposed by the police investigation puts forward two likely scenarios for what happened to Harold's body. It was either drawn out into deep ocean waters before rescuers could get to it, or lodged into underwater rock formations and quickly decomposed by hungry sea creatures. In either case, the police weren't surprised or alarmed that the body was never found. The conditions in the water on December 17th were simply too rough and aggressive to have allowed rescuers to find it before it met one of the two fates they suggested. But what if the body was missing because someone removed it? Early in 1968, Melbourne's Sunday Observer published a front-page story claiming that the United States CIA assassinated Harold because he was considering pulling Australia out of the Vietnam War. Deepwater divers were waiting for him at Cheviot Beach and dragged away his body, never to be found. Considering Harold's election on the basis of his pro-Vietnam War and pro-American politics, this theory seems extremely unlikely. Another assassination theory makes more political sense. North Vietnamese covert operatives killed him because he was so closely tied to America's position in the Vietnam War. But neither of these ideas account for the water conditions on December 17, 1967. It would have been difficult for even an extremely skilled deep-water diver to assassinate Harold out in the water in view of his companions on the beach and then absconded out to sea with the body. But these wild theories pointed to a bigger issue. The public wasn't satisfied with the explanation for the missing body and wanted a more succinct answer. It would take over 15 years for them to get it, but in 1983, British novelist and conspiracy theorist Anthony Gray provided the perfect explosive theory. The story begins with a May 1983 call from an Australian man named Ronald Titcombe to Anthony Gray. Titcombe explained to Gray that he had definitely solved the mystery of Harold Holt's disappearance and he was willing to give Gray the whole story if Gray wanted to shape it into a book. Gray, intrigued, agreed, and over a series of meetings, Titcombe, who claimed to be a retired Navy man, explained his theory. According to Titcombe, Harold Holt visited the Chinese Consul General in 1929. He was there to ask for information to include in a paper he was preparing for a debate at Queen's College, Melbourne University. The Chinese Consul General eventually obtained a copy of Harold's paper and asked to speak with its author. Then, the paper made its way to a Mr. Chen, who has a small publishing business dealing with commercial news. 
Chen offered Harold a substantial sum of money for the paper. Titcomb's evidence for this series of events came from meetings he'd had with Chinese intelligence officials earlier that year who had shown him a photocopy of a receipt for 50 Australian pounds signed by Harold, dated 1929, along with six other receipts signed by Harold for amounts ranging between 50 to 100 Australian pounds, all apparently payments for articles. But obviously, according to Titcomb, these receipts were representative of a Chinese effort to recruit Harold as an undercover agent. The effort, Titcomb claimed, was successful. Harold's first job was to open trade lines between Australia and China and generally lobby for increased communication and freedom between the two countries. This sounds more like political lobbying than espionage. But when Harold was elected to the Australian Parliament in 1935, he became a full-fledged agent, Titcomb explained, and began actively and regularly handing information over to the Chinese. The rest of Harold's apparently impressive career as a secret agent continued, according to Titcomb, through his work in the government, his stint in the military, and his return to government, and eventually the seat of prime minister. These were large, serious claims, but they came from reliable sources, Titcomb assured Gray, the same Chinese intelligence contacts as the recruitment story. As evidence, these Chinese contacts had shown him four documents relating to the Korean War, an assessment of two rival Pakistani politicians that Holt had met in 1952, a 1954 assessment of Cambodia's future, and documents outlining Australia's attitude to the communist uprising in the French colony of Vietnam. These, Harold had apparently passed faithfully to the Chinese. But Titcomb's story was far from over. In 1967, after close to 40 years working with the Chinese, Harold started to panic. He suspected the Australian intelligence services were onto his espionage. And so he requested that his Chinese masters allow him to defect. The Chinese agreed. The date was set for December 17th. Harold was instructed to enter the water at Cheviot Beach at precisely 12.15 p.m. Holt, after swimming out some distance, took a deep breath and submerged himself under the water. Waiting below the surface were two divers. They pulled on Harold's ankles and dragged him down into a waiting underwater vehicle. The vehicle then transported him to a submarine some 800 meters away. And the submarine took him off to China, never to be seen again. This is a wild but compelling story. A prime minister as a spy is a frighteningly exciting scenario. But while intelligence investigations uncovered hard proof of the Cambridge Five's espionage, Titcomb's backing for his claims was minimal and never supported by an intelligence agency. Some bits of it, like the idea that a submarine could have gotten within 800 meters of the Cheviot Beach shore, were verifiably impossible with 1967 technology. 
The theory's answer to the question of Harold's motivation for the spying is also particularly unsatisfying. Titcomb suggests it was both financial and personal. Harold apparently wanted money, and he had some sympathy for Chinese communism. But Harold never displayed any changes in his spending or showed an unusual influx of wealth at any point in his career that might indicate he was receiving espionage payments. He was also distinctly anti-communist in his domestic policy and as a close ally of the U.S. in the Vietnam War in his international policy as well. It's strange that he would advance such politics around the globe if he really was secretly sympathetic to the communists. And it's strange that not even a wisp of left-wing sentiment was ever noted by his friends, colleagues, or acquaintances. Plus, he was a family man for all his philandering. Abandoning his wife, stepchildren, and grandchildren would have been deeply out of character for the amiable sportsman. But many of Titcomb's claims, as wild as they were, were as difficult to disprove as they were to prove. Anthony Gray was convinced that it was worth publishing the story. Hence, the 1983 book, The Prime Minister Was a Spy. Gray included a caveat with the text. I can't guarantee that the story is true. I cannot point to any incontrovertible documentary evidence or produce any tangible physical object like a rabbit out of a hat to prove beyond the last doubt that the story is true in every detail. In the last resort, reliance has to be placed essentially on detailed verbal information provided in Asia, Australia, and Europe by different Chinese informants. No material evidence was ever presented to substantiate the story, not even the receipts and documents Titcomb had apparently been shown by Chinese intelligence officials. And no one besides Titcomb ever stepped forward to corroborate the story. But Gray presented Titcomb's narrative more or less as truth, and the wild theory spread. Other writers proposed similar theories. And Harold Holt's death continued to fascinate and mystify Australians and people around the world. On the 25th of August, 2003, as part of an examination of outstanding cold cases, the coroner of Australia's Victoria region announced that he was considering holding an inquest into Holt's death, perhaps hoping to put the speculation finally to an end. The formal inquest began in August 2005, and a month later it released its findings. The inquest concluded, quote, Mr. Holt took an unnecessary risk and drowned in rough water off Cheviot Beach. There is nothing of significance in any of the material gathered that would indicate anything other than drowning occurred. But even the simplest explanation for Harold Holt's disappearance, that he was one of many victims who accidentally drown in Australia, comes with its own strange twists. In 1999, the Aussie Post published an article featuring the respected Tasmanian spiritual medium Michael Cartwright and George Eldred, a world-renowned clairvoyant from Melbourne. These two men had contacted Harold Holt in the afterlife, and this is what Harold told them. It's true that at the time of my death, I was depressed and tired. I was under great pressure at the time. 
I just wanted to get away from people, hence I decided to go swimming. I did not want anyone around me. While I was in the water, I was knocked off my feet by the strength of the wave from the undertow. It dragged me under and I was turned over and over like I was in a washer. I soon lost consciousness. My body could not be found because in that very rocky area there was a large rock shelf and my body was pinned under the shelf. This is why my body was never found. I want the truth to be known as it has been bandied around that there was something wrong with me emotionally. Harold's last words, according to the mediums, corroborate what seems like the likeliest version of the Harold Holt disappearance. He was under political pressure as prime minister, which messed with his judgment and led him to take the foolish risk of entering wild waters with a strong ocean-bound current. He didn't want to die, and he didn't run off to live with the communists, at least not according to any evidence we've seen to this point. But to this day, many people have trouble accepting that his disappearance was a simple case of accidental drowning. It seems hard to believe that a simple trick of fate could take down such a promising monumental man. Holt was the leader of his country, still new to office, with a long career to come. Despite his political troubles at the time of his disappearance, his party would hold power until 1972, five years after his disappearance. Had he lived on, he would have likely continued to exert influence over Australia's politics and world events. But as difficult as it is to imagine that a high tide and a strong current one December day in 1967 could change the course of world history, that's almost certainly just what happened. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Kerry Murphy, Paul Mahler, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>